Hi, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us today, this Wednesday. Uh, this time, we will continue our discussion, so it runs th thoughts on several things uh, and basically her main essays. Today's essay, it's an untitled letter. It was published in 1973, and it was uh, later published as a chapter in philosophy. Who needs it? Uh, here you, you'll be able to grasp Rand's view on the new wave of egalitarianism brewing in the George McCovern versus Nixon campaign. And also here is the closest thing that you will have of a critique of Rand to Rawls' A New Theory of Justice. So why is this the closest thing? Well, stay with us to find out. Uh, we're discussing this with Don Watkins and James Valiant. Don has co-authored books like Equal is Unfair and The Moral Case of Finance. Uh, you can follow him on the website donswriting.com. We also have James. He's the author of Creating Christ and the Passion of Ayn Rand's Critics. Before we begin, feel free to those people watching us on YouTube to make questions through the Super Chat feature. We will be tracking it live. Okay, so, so let's jump to the discussion. And first of all, I think even though Rand makes the case of her positive theory of justice within, within the, the essay, I think it would be better if we would just flirt it out at the beginning. What is Rand's view of justice and how can we know a bit more about this derivation and its causes? Well, in the first instance, it's important because Rawls titles his book, <laughs> A Theory of Justice, it's important to distinguish what it is not for Ayn Rand as, as well as what it is. Justice is a moral concept. It's a moral evaluation and therefore pertains only to volitional entities, human beings who have free will and choice. Absent volition, absent choice, it is, there is no meaningful term justice. You can't, for example, say that it's unjust that the sun rises every morning. It just does. There's no one who's responsible. There's no one whose choice it is. And so walking in the door, ethics is a, a matter of, the only subject matter of ethics is what pertains to human volition. And of course, volition in John Rawls's theory has nothing to do with it. Effort, individual effort, uh, uh, thinking, creativity, all everything that pertains and every related concept of volition is actually set aside in Rawls's theory of justice. For him, justice is a matter of what degree of equality or inequality between people do we permit? So Thank for Ayn Rand, though, positively, justice is the honest and correct evaluation of a person's morality. It not only assumes itself a volitional evaluation of the person, you're evaluating a volitional being. Absent that, you don't have justice. Now, justice focuses on our judgment of other people, our moral judgment of other people. That's a volitional act on our part that can be evaluated, whether our evaluation of the person as being just or unjust is correct. Their justice or injustice depends on their exercise of their volition in all other matters uh, pertaining to ethics, if that made sense. Yeah, I mean, I will just highlight one thing. I don't know if you're disagreeing with this, James, but um, it's certainly true that there's a special focus on moral judgment, but it's wider. justice is wider than that, right? For instance, you could have an employee who's perfectly honest and he tries hard, but just is incompetent. And it's an act of justice to say, no, you're not a good employee in this role at my company. I'm going to let you go. 
Um, but that it's so it's judging volitional things. It's, it's judging human beings as who are volitional creatures, but it's wider than just moral judgment, which is, you know, fundamental judgment about uh, a person's character or, you know, derivative aspects like their ideas or particular actions. Right. That is an important distinction. But the concept of justice is a moral concept that necessarily implies volition, the very concept that Rawls and his egalitarian friends ignore. Another introductory question is, what is Rand's justification of capitalism? Uh, is it, for instance, the utilitarian slogan of the greatest happiness to the greatest number? Well, no, I mean, she... One way she'll put it is that ultimately the justification for capitalism is justice. So if you think about justice as it's judging people objectively and treating them as they deserve, capitalism is a system that treats people as they deserve. It protects their rights so that they are free to use their judgment to live their lives and to take the actions that their survival and happiness require. And so Ultimately, she thinks the moral justification for capitalism is the fact that human beings are ends in themselves. We have a right to live for our own sake and that capitalism is the system that protects that. Exactly. Thank you. So I think we could move on to the central, to the central topic of the essay. And basically, that's my question. What is, why is this essay first called an entire let letter? And then what is the core issue that Grant is trying to address in this essay? Well, she, I mean, she says at the beginning that, you know, she would uh, consider calling that piece, I told you so. She says that would be in dubious taste. But what is the I told you so? And it's that she's been saying since Atlas Shrugged that the motives of mystics, um, altruist collectivist is not love of mankind, but hatred for the mind, hatred for man, hatred for ability. And if you've ever expressed that view to people, or if you've heard them come in an Atlas Shrugged, there's often a response of, oh, come on, that can't be right. Like, that sounds crazy. And th that's the I told you so is what she what she's pointing to in this essay is an example that is so clear cut in its motivations that there's no pretense of, oh, this is about, you know, concern for helping mankind or something that's an open attack on ability. It's an open attack on the individual's ability to flourish and achieve success. And so in that, it, that's the sense in which I think she's saying, I told you so. It's like, look, no, here in reality and nonfiction is exactly this phenomenon that I was writing about in my novels. Yeah. Isn't it great to have Dom here, a guy who actually wrote a book on egalitarianism? But that it's exactly uh, right. That's exactly right. Ayn Rand had said, to the shock of so many, that it really boils down to something like hatred of the good for being the good. A reversal, a perversive reversal of values. And she would not, I think, in 1957, have actually projected that Rawls would actually say something like that, or, or Marshall Cohen would say something like that. So when she reads it actually coming about by the 1970s, all she has to do merely is point and say, look, see? <laughs> Thank you. Um, then she will talk about four instances, four different instances where she saw this and 
we will develop, uh, I mean, more questions on the last two. But on the first two instances that she brings to the SAR, the first one, Dr. Tim Bergerns, uh, who won the Nobel Prize in 1969, I think, and he's calling for a tax on um, personal liability, I think. And then it's also about the Pope calling about the new justice. But why is she bringing these instances at the beginning of the essay? What is Rand's motive for uh, talking about these two um, issues at the beginning? Well, it presents as a new theory. But as she points out, the morality is an ancient one. The assumptions are ancient assumptions. And there's no real questioning of those ancient assumptions. Uh, it's really just those ancient assumptions reaching their full, consistent, logical conclusion. Uh, the direct attack on ability and the defense and the attack on them and the sacrifice of them for the least able. Not just for the majority of mankind, as the utilitarians would have it, but for actually the lowest and the least. And more than that, for those who are morally corrupt as far it's Christian morality. That's why it's coming from the Pope. You cite the Pope because basically these secular leftists like Rawls have basically adopted the ethics of the Catholic Church without any analysis, whatever. Yeah, I mean, she's going to go into great depth about one particular argument about this idea of a new justice and then into depth about what a major source of that idea, John Rawls. And so she needs to establish at the outset that she's not just like cherry picking, hey, here's one idea you know, that some crazy person or two crazy people are writing about in order for it to be. And I told you so it has to be an idea that's permeating the culture and that has cachet. And so if you're getting it from a secular, well-respected, you know, mind, somebody who won a Nobel Prize and you're getting it from the Pope. And now we're going to see it come from Harvard and from this. I forget if it's a New York Times columnist or whomever the, the, um, the other guy is whose name is escaping me for the second for a second. Um, She's getting that this is a, uh, I mean, she calls it a trial balloon, this idea of new justice. It's the idea that there's this idea being tested out in the culture. And I mean, we can talk about contemporary trial balloons, but you definitely see these new ideas pop into the culture and get play. And they're, they're kind of unusual. And it's all right, is this, is this going to catch on or are people going to push back against it? And she's saying, like, th this is a cultural idea, not just something that like, um, if you've ever seen, you know, people on Twitter who they specialize in hunting down somebody with 22 followers who said some outrageous thing. She's like, I'm not doing that. This is a real thing that is trying to influence us and that is getting that's accelerating in its influence. And now I'm going to analyze it. So it's worthy of being analyzed. It is representative in a certain way um, of ideas that have cultural cachet. And, and so I think that's that's why you couldn't just leap to this one particular essay and then this one particular book. And boy, did she call it right. It, the, what was what she considered a trial balloon back then has really taken hold uh, thoroughly on the left and partially even on the right. When you hear President Obama saying to, to business people, you didn't build that. That is, in effect, the assumption and the effect of this theory of justice. So it's gained currency. It really has. She was correct. Uh, it was what was a trial balloon then is now a commonly asserted bromide by a Democrat politician. Well, wider than that, I mean, one of the things 
that we see is uh, we'll probably talk about this more. Um, but she talks about the way in which the whole idea that the egalitarians are trying to pass off is not just like, hey, the rich are evil, soak the rich, but it's the rich should view themselves as people who just got lucky, didn't earn their wealth. And one of the really striking things, if you followed even non-political business discussions today, there's this relentless focus on luck. And oh, I got Bill Gates, oh, I got lucky. And Warren Buffett, I got lucky. And that's like the thing that everybody has to say is I didn't, I, I, I don't, don't think that I sit here and take all the credit for achieving my wealth. I know that, you know, I was fortunate to be born in this country to these parents, a bunch of factors outside of my control. And um, and so it's the, the ideas have really taken hold, even, un, even amongst the people who you would think are least likely to accept it, which is the people that, that are the targets of it. Right. I mean, it almost goes from the, uh, poor etiquette of boasting to the, no, now you are morally obliged to acknowledge that it was not your volition that was the, was the cause of your uh, success. So any, as I'm getting back to it, really the, the concept here that they're evading is volition, effort, any related uh, corollary concept. So creativity, effort. Um, see, no amount of native ability can bring that person to bring that native ability it, to create an achievement or bring it, manifest it in reality. No amount of ability. You can have the highest IQ in the world, the most gifted brain in the world, the most athletically uh, uh, friendly sort of body you could have. That doesn't make the person engage in athletics or use their brain or take the effort to actually use the talents, let's say they have, to whatever degree. How many of us have seen the children of the wealthy destroy their lives as drug, drug addicts and uh, completely worthless people with mental problems. And how many times have we seen people who came from the roughest background possible and achieved the greatest success? That's the very thing that these folks, these egalitarians, consistently and self-consciously, in effect, are ignoring or pretending does not exist. The idea of choice, effort, creativity. No, 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 no. It's not, it has nothing to do with you enacting your talents, it's a question of your given raw talents uh, as such. That's that. And even if it were a question of given raw talents, why why isn't it that the woman with the perfect uh, six octave range should, shouldn't be the highest paid singer? She may have a natural gift there, but it's her gift. She's the one who has this amazing skill that we're getting the benefit from. Not only does it conflate, as Ayn Rand says, the metaphysical from the man-made in that way, but it completely obliterates the concept of volition and effort, which is the whole basis of morality. But that's also one reason why I think it's helpful to remember that justice isn't just about the moral issue, right? It's if you make money because you're a great singer, we're not paying you as like a, a merit badge, right? This is not oh, you worked harder than every other singer. Like maybe you did and you probably did work super hard if you're a highly paid singer, whatever your kind of starting point in talent. No, we're paying you because of the value you gave us. And it's you who gave it to us, you as a whole person. And some of that is moral, some of it is inbuilt. Um, but it's just that you receive the rewards for the value you created, not just the value that's a pure product of choice 
in a vacuum, right? And so the, the, the yeah, I mean, the whole view as we'll get into is skewed and it's all deliberate. Their goal is not, well, what we really care about is that people are rewarded for the choices they make and that those that that's not distorted by things that they didn't choose, such as their parents or their singing ability. Um, it's that we don't care about people's choices at all. Um, and it's in the end, we don't care about rewards. We care about taking rewards or taking values away from people. Right. But think of all the amazing talented singers and athletes who didn't take the effort, didn't take the initiative to perfect or, or just simply engage so that their talents could be shared. Even a natural talent, which as Don says, is a valid reason to distinguish the value to me that the singer is providing. It's still, every time a human does something, sings, does sports, uses their talents, that is a volitional act. Thank you. Um, I think we will return to this topic pretty quickly. Um, but I think we could start with the um, third instance that Rand comes up with, which is uh, Mr. Worst Thorne from the Sunday Telegraph. Peregrine um, was for- a longtime editor of the Telegraph in London. Yes, I, I would be so much more satisfied if it was pronounced worst horn. <laughs> worst horn. He has such a. It's such a. Sometimes the people who Ayn Rand takes on have these almost uh, these names that Ayn Rand could have invented for the villains and the characters. You know, right. Bosley Crowther or Peregrine Worsthorn. I mean, but the guy was uh, a critic of Margaret Thatcher, uh, but he was also uh, he attacked gays in England. He was a controversial uh, journalist in England, a uh, longtime editor, associate editor, and then editor of the Telegraph in London. Curious because it's um, like the right wing, center right wing um, newspaper here. It's but... eloquent, isn't it, that it comes from the Telegraph of all places? Uh, but what is his argument? Um, he, he tries to bring up this um, feudalism. And, and he tries to make a case that we are in the same, uh, in a very similar instance to what happened both when capitalism changed um, feudalism and, and probably um, what happened right before the um, French Revolution, although he, he doesn't mention that. Consider that. Well, the- okay. <laughs> We're just going to go back to this concept that we've talked about before, robber baron. Right. It is it is an intentional destruction of the very concept of a capitalist entrepreneur versus a medieval baron who's taking something by force, as opposed to somebody who's producing something and whose customers are dealing with him voluntarily. So the concept robber baron combines two things that are just not like meritocracy. If merit gets you a positive outcome, it's not an ocracy, a rule that we're talking about. Again, that's a package deal. So what he's doing is the same kind of thing. He's conflating medieval privilege, uh, inherited privilege of aristocrats in feudal Europe with the with the um, innate talents that people are born with, as if that in itself was just like uh, uh, being born of a king or something. It's not. Again, coming back to the basic idea, it obliterates the idea of volition. 
It's as if these native talents, like your noble genealogy in the medieval times, is what decides the outcome, the sole decider of outcomes. So he's saying it's really no different, no different at all to be born smart, use those smarts to invent some new product and get rich through your own efforts, as it was to be born the son of a king. Obliterating the key distinction that makes something moral or not. And calling it a theory of justice. Yes, I mean, if you get, I mean, the, the way he presents his argument is, so look, Humanity finally grasped that the that you know feudalist inequality was unjust, right? Because it arose from people getting special privileges they didn't deserve. And so we replaced that with meritocracy. All right, that's great. And then he looks around and he says, Well, wait a minute. Meritocracy is just the new inequality. It gives people special privileges they don't deserve. Being born to a better family, being born with more intelligence or a stronger work ethic or a better education, that's all a matter of luck. And so the solution, he thinks, is going to be, well, what we need is these high flyers need to embrace the idea that they have social obligations, social responsibility to pay more in taxes, pay more in social services if they want this privilege of exercising their talents. And so... what, what Jim gave is kind of how he puts it over uh, and we can kind of break that down more, but that's the essential argument. He's saying the same thing that causes us to view feudalism as unjust should cause us to view what he's calling meritocracy unjust is that both are instances of both produce inequality and both have inequality in the roots of things people didn't deserve. And so, well, clearly then we, we need to make a big change. I think a year ago, someone put a guillotine um, right outside, right, right outside um, Jeff Bezos's house. Do you think it has something to do with this kind of idea, with this notion of uh, replacing? Oh God, let Don take that. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's certainly the same motive, right? Like it, it's the motive of why is he being targeted, and certainly why is he being targeted in something that's like literal bloodshed uh and if you think about the the french revolution it's the bloodshed of the people at the top of society and so it's the idea of like we're gonna cut your throat because you're at the top and the the and so to get it the the injustice like what jim said is important is that there's two big uh things going on here that are not legitimate first of all it's what does it mean that they're at the top of society It's a big difference if it's you're the ruler of society who gets to order people around and take their money and you're at the top of society in the sense of you've earned more wealth than other people by providing goods that people voluntarily choose to pay you for. You don't take away their freedom. You respect their freedom. You have no political power over them at all. So that's that's one big difference. And that's why Rand is rejecting the concept of meritocracy is it blends together. I'm at the top in the sense of I've been more productive and it's I'm at the top in the sense that I have more power over your lives and more ability to and, and ability to exploit other people. But then the second thing is this issue of they didn't deserve it. So. Yeah, a person, um, this is the whole idea of political equality as an ideal that we talk about in the founding that I think everybody in this call agrees with. It's the idea that none of us are born superior to others in the sense of 
that I should be able to tell you how to run your life. You should have to work for me. That is as metaphysical creatures, we're all creatures who have reason and survive by reason. And therefore this gives rise to the idea that we have equal rights. We have, we're equal in our freedom because we're all equally human beings. Um, the, the, the switch then is to say, uh, hold on. I lost my train of thought for a second. How was I, where was I going? Uh, we have the package deal on Meritocracy. Oh, and then the issue of dessert. Um, so, it, so it's that if there's in a, you didn't de you don't deserve a higher standing. You don't deserve more income just because you know you're born as my lord or something like that. But then the founders were really insistent upon this, which is the enlightenment. The whole enlightenment view is not okay. Well, everybody should end up equally intelligent, equally morally praiseworthy, equal in their economic uh, sphere. That was all a product of how you used your equal freedom. If people are treated equally politically, they are going to end up wildly unequal in wealth because people have different natures. They have different capacities. And as we've been stressing, they make very different choices. And so the, the what is there's no presumption that um, there's a problem to be solved if people end up with different amounts of money. But from the egalitarian mindset, it's, no, there is a big problem here. And it's, what does it then mean that you earn something? So they're, they're putting together as unearned the special privileges of somebody who is born as, let's say, a lord, and somebody who makes a fortune by, let's say, starting a business or writing a popular novel. And then you think, well, how in the world could you equate those two things? Like that seems pretty insane. But then that's where they play this game of, well, look, what went into you earning your fortune in the market? You, and let's say it's, oh, I worked hard. Okay, but where did your work ethic come from? It's that I came up with a new idea. Where did your special intelligence come from? Um, all of it in one way or another was something you didn't earn, Right. You didn't earn your intent. What they they love saying, you didn't pick your parents. You know, you didn't pick the country you were born into. So the idea is going to be to earn something is not that you, given your nature and identity and the options available to you, made certain choices that led to a certain value being created. It's that you were a god who created everything about yourself and then went on to use that to create other things. And so Ayn Rand is going to, uh, let's say disagree with that concept and uh we should spend some time talking about it because that is that if if um jim mentioned the you didn't build that argument uh obama was echoing elizabeth warren who I, I like a month or two earlier had come out with this nobody gets rich on their own and all of these kinds of views are really rooted in rawls's idea as we'll get to that um a person doesn't earn what they get because they we're not responsible for everything that went into creating it that you want. You basically won a genetic lottery. You know, you won an environmental lottery and Rand thinks that this is really the obliteration of the concept justice, but it's very plausible to people. And so really needs to be thought through. Yeah. And look at the con critical conflations here between economic power, which is, really just 
the power to uh, trade, uh, produce, trade, profit from that, have the money to do more voluntary interactions with people. It's totally different than political power, as Ayn Rand so often stressed. That's the power of guns and tanks and police and armies, physical force. Political power is not the same as economic power, and these guys conflate it all the time. Freedom isn't even power, and they conflate that all the time. These are distinctions, uh, complete ignoring the critical distinctions that really help us understand uh, the situation are being obliterated on purpose. Uh, the distinctions that Ayn Rand is so careful to make are being obliterated on purpose precisely to obscure the moral difference. Well, in The Godfather, they don't distinguish between making an offer that they can't refuse with an offer that they can refuse. Exactly. Um, the difference between the free market and criminals and government. Yes. That's good. Um, so one of the things that Ryan highlights is that, sure, it, this article has some addressing to the left, but Worthorn spends a long time discussing about um, the impact that these kind of ideas have on the right. Why does he have this kind of um, dealing about addressing to the right? Why is he addressing so much to the right? The story so much is on the right and how they caved, how because they basically accepted the underlying ethics, they were in effect disarmed. And the right was mostly turned into a big Me Too chorus in the 20th century, in the 21st century, of, well, we don't want to go quite as far as y'all do, but how can they challenge them in a fundamental way? They accept the same basic morality. They accept the, the, the fundamental moral premises uh, <laughs> that the left do. Well, let me put it the other way around. The left, although they're secular, have simply adopted the ethics that's as old as Christianity with some Kantian perverse twists. So in effect, they're the ones who've adopted the conservatives' ancient savage ideology of altruism in effect and collectivism in effect. And uh, so they, it, it's what they agree upon that's really the frightening thing. And the reason why at the end of every Republican administration, we are less free and have a bigger government, just as we do perhaps to a lesser degree after every Democrat government in this uh, country. <laughs> it's what they agree to. That's why Republicans have been me tooing all the way about Social Security, Medicare, you name it. Well, and it's also, I mean, in in, in a way, it's a threat. So, the, the, I and you you hear this argument all the time. In fact, I would say this is like one of the top five arguments that I heard in the wake of Equals Unfair from you know left and right, which was. Like, set aside all of your moral theorizing about deserve or earn. The fact is, if you let inequality get out of control, you're not going to have a free market left because people are going to rebel. They're going to say, I I've had enough of it. They're going to rise up and they're going to they're going to tear down the system. Um, but if you actually look at history and you look around the world, People do not rise up in the face of inequality. What they rise up in is the face of perceived injustices. And it's only to the extent that they view these outcomes as unjust that a, a level of inequality becomes unsustainable. So yeah, if there's a bunch of people who can't do anything with their lives 
and they look at their kind of like, you know, the commissars living in, you know, their their beautiful cabins and driving their beautiful cars. And they're like lucky to get, you know, some watered down soup once a week to eat. Then they're going to say to hell with this. We're tearing the system down. And then you see the fall of places like communism. But that is not what you saw in the United States. I mean, even in the Gilded Age, the so-called Gilded Age, um, where people were a lot less prosperous than today, they didn't by and large say we need to tear down Rockefeller. We need to you know, wipe out the successful. Um, they viewed it as largely fair. And to the extent they didn't, it was precisely because people walking around trying to persuade them, hey, they got that way by cheating you. They got that way by exploiting you. So the risk is not inequality per se, but how it's conceptualized. And it's precisely these kinds of egalitarians who are saying out of one side, hey, guys, this is all unjust. You're being exploited. This is all unfair. They didn't earn it. And then they turn to the right and say, Hey guys, what are you going to do? Your system's creating all kinds of inequality and people are going to rise up and take it down. It's like to the extent that that could happen, it's because of what you're doing uh, by preaching that this is an unjust system. Um, but the point is that, they, that, that that argument worked. His advice to the right was largely taken. And so when you get this appeasement of inequality in part, it's precisely this idea of, man, maybe they won't let us keep any capitalism if we don't like you know, give in a little bit, make sure that they get some nice juicy handouts and don't do anything too ostentatious with our wealth. Like, don't buy a damn yacht. My God, what are you thinking? That'll like, <laughs> then people will realize that, you know, you have a lot of money and you're not supposed to, you know, you have to pretend that you don't have a lot of money. You have to be like Warren Buffett and drive, you know, beat up car and live in a small house. Um, never mind your vacation homes that you don't tell people about on the, you know, ocean front of Laguna Beach. Uh, it's, it, I mean, it, it's kind of a small section of this essay, but it's striking to me how much, yeah, like that really permeated down to today. Ayn Rand gave some great examples. Americans had before their eyes in the middle and the late 19th century, example after example of fully self-made individuals, Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, even Abraham Lincoln in politics, Thomas Edison, and people realized that, look, no, Thomas Edison, if he's successful, it's because he's providing us all these creative inventions. Abraham Lincoln was successful because he was self-educated, came from nowhere, and then went on to help free the slaves. People knew that great achievements were coming from people who didn't have much in terms of the natural lottery behind uh, Rawls's veil, veil of Ignorance, and yet they succeeded in doing great things by contributing great things and being rewarded properly for it and uh, <laughs> in a free trade. So people had in their ideas that, no, volition is, character does matter. Ethics does matter to this. And look at these people who are actually providing great values, which created, I think, a different attitude in America about wealth and success. For a long time, at least. Um, I was wondering if I could make also based on, on that question on the on the right, uh, on the other thing on the right. Um, there's a follow up on Rand that she says that um, the purpose is not to burn sacrificial victims to have, but to have them leap into furnaces on their free will. And she's based on, on a quote of Warsthorn. Um, 
and one of the part that he mentions is what, what you've been mentioning, like this uh, threat of uh, being prepared to pay, be prepared to pay a social higher price, a higher social price for the privilege of exercising your, your talent. But he's also, um, but Ronnie is also talking about um, calling for people to accept these kind of ideas. Could you comment a bit more on that? Well, I mean, there were people in the 1930s who literally said that Franklin Delano Roosevelt putting off this, the New Deal and in effect giving capitalism its biggest, maybe single hit in American history was saving capitalism. And she points out here that someone like Mr. Worsthorn may actually be, when he calls for this new sense of noblesse oblige, he says, we must have this awareness of our privilege, even in a meritocracy, as he calls it. But this new sense of noblesse, noblesse oblige is required to us. And as you point out, he's writing for the Telegraph. <laughs> Think about that. It, and Ayn Rand actually goes so far as to say, yeah, and these people will come to say that these folks are saving capitalism. The most perverse thing you can possibly imagine by caving in, in effect, to the basic principle. Okay, and the last um, thing th that I think I have for this part of the essay is Rand mentions also that there's push for putting another kind of aristocracy into power. Which what she calls the mediocracy. What is that? And uh, could she also mentions an old Could you mention a bit more on, on that? Well, I mean, it, the whole thing that's starting to come to the forefront already, and then we'll see even more with Rawls, is that who's be like who is society geared towards so in rand's view a free society is geared towards the producer and that doesn't mean like big businessmen or something it's every it, it it's every individual insofar as they're trying to you know sustain their own life creating the things that they need to survive and you can think about then um a you know feudalism as it's geared towards the exploiter it's to the person who wants to exercise power live in live a life of leisure you know be this so-called gentleman who basically gets to live off of slave labor and then her view is that okay um what kind of society are they trying to create who is it geared towards it's geared towards the person who creates nothing, does nothing, wants nothing. It's not that they're that this that they're more powerful and therefore deserve to rule over others. It's precisely that they lack power, even in the economic sense. Is that they haven't created anything, they haven't done anything, um, and that therefore all of society, our whole way of life, should be geared towards. Uh, what they need, what they require, them getting resources, them having power and control. It's that that's the that's the kind of pinnacle of society. Like, um, what do we worship? Not the men of ability, not the kings and queens. It's the, per the heroin addict in the gutter with a needle in his arm. He's the worst off person in society. So damn, like that's that's what we worship. 
Um, and that's really the kind of perspective. It's not literally that like, okay, we got to elect all the heroin users in office or something like that. It's that that's the kind of person society's geared towards. That's what our social institutions say. The, these people come first. Everything else is a means towards them. Yeah. Look at the connection between what the Pope said and in effect Rawls theory. Rawls is modifying utilitarianism to say, uh, it's not the greatest number necessarily, but actually the least well-off who should be our focus. What is their status? The least well-off should be the cause and source and primary inspiration for public policy. Not most people, not the productive people, not the people trying to live their own lives, but actually, and in the Pope's mind, this includes people who are, because he has a sense of morality, people who are corrupt morally more even the morally corrupt it's not just the incompetence for whatever reason it's actually the morally corrupt not just the poor for whatever reason it's the bad so when you look at uh, the comparison i mean the pope actually adds a sort of a religious moral dimension to it and Rawls sort of gives a pseudo-scientific uh, argument for it but both in effect are doing what don says turning the worst elements the lowest elements in the Pope's mind, even the most morally corrupt elements into the focus and the centerpiece for public policy. Wow, not the productive, not people trying to live their lives honestly. That's not what it's all about. It's about the weakest, the smallest, and indeed the most morally corrupt. Wow. Thank you. So, we can move on to the last part, which is the main one, which is basically Rand's take on roles, or at least um, something more or less like that. And that's what my first question is, is how should one interpret, interpret Rand's view of roles in this essay? Um, and and what, what does she say about that? Well, she kind of presumes she doesn't read the book and she doesn't need to, frankly. I agree with her, her desire not to waste her precious time on reading another book, which one, once she identifies the mystical method, the irrational method, this veil of ignorance that Rawls is putting this, we all have to get behind. It's perfectly irrational, perfectly mystical in its approach. It divorces the factual context from any consideration, really. And so once she has identified that, uh, the mystical method here and that he's basically bought into uh, an even worse form of egalitarianism, Ayn Rand, in her own mind, has no need to read this book and she knows it's what it is. She assumes, in effect, that the reviewers are telling us the truth about this book. And in fact, they were. As an undergraduate, I can tell you that I was compelled to read major parts of Rawls' book. And uh, having read major parts of Rawls' book for myself, the reviewers basically got it correct. So the way to look at it, yeah, is a review of the reviews and Rand's inference from that of what Rawls said. Uh, but the inference is correct. Trust me, as someone who's read a bunch of Rawls, uh, as I had to as a philosophy undergrad, uh, this is a, a very fair and brilliantly written critique of the whole idea. Yeah, and you have to keep in mind her purpose, right? Her purpose is, this is not me engaging in like scholarly articles about like let's analyze john rawls as in itself her whole concern is that ideas influencing the culture and so that's why she says that you know quite apart from if this reflects the author i don't know firsthand um 
this is what's spreading in the culture, this kind of interpretation. And then it's a secondary question of, well, is this exactly getting Rawls right and everything? And her, what she's basically saying is, I don't have a view on that because I haven't read him. Although the, 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 the reviews seem to agree. So that's some evidence that they're getting, that they're getting Rawls right. Um, but from our perspective as readers, it really doesn't matter because that's always, whenever we hear Ayn Rand say, analyzing a thinker, we would have to read the thinker ourselves in order to say, does this really match the thinker's ideas? And so you have, you, what, even if she said, I went by Rawls piece by piece and this is my conclusion, you'd still, in order to say she got Rawls right, you'd have to go through and read Rawls. And yeah, that was, that was the, um, it actually wasn't that painful, but that was definitely the least pleasant research that I did for Equals Unfair, which is I read through Rawls' theory of justice. Now, Rawls, like Kant, loved, like, let me have multiple editions. So you couldn't even, you know, say, well, this is what Rawls said, right? Because the next question would be, wait, you only read Rawls' first edition of theory of justice. Rawls, what Andrew about Rawls the later me. editions? <laughs> and then he had his, uh, he, he wrote other books that kind of shifted the theory in this way and that way. Uh, let alone what Ayn Rand is going to go to on to point out that then there's 20 different interpreters and a thousand different uh, sub interpreters and so on. Um, so, you know, the point is that what Ayn Rand is interested in is how the ideas are influencing the culture. And she's interested in the essentials of the ideas. That is, what is the core of the Rawlsian outlook? Not kind of like what is the whole sort of detailed view of his theory? And I think the, the major pieces of his theory and certainly the ones um, that bleed into statements from politicians like you didn't build that. That's what comes out here. Uh, and it certainly matches. Um, I mean, you don't have to read all of Rawls to get it. You, you, you can read kind of like 20 you know, pages or less of selections where he makes these kind of foundational points. Um, yeah, like that's all I have to say point. on that. There's a really, a really wonderful additional point that Ayn Rand makes, uh, a somewhat sympathetic, if somewhat critical, leftist reviewer, Marshall Cohen, uh, is saying that Rawls can really only get off the ground by making certain, and this was his phrase, considered ambiguities about certain concepts, deeper philosophical concepts. Wow, Ayn Rand says, yeah, okay, that means he's being intentionally vague, intentionally obscure intentionally not answering the more fundamental questions. <clears throat> that in itself undermines the entire project, obviously. It shows its utterly mystical base. It shows sort of the same Kantian motivation here. Once Ayn Rand gets to that stage with a thinker, I think that she recognizes that she doesn't need to go much further. I mean, just as an aside, I actually find Kant way better as a writer uh, than Rawls. So, I mean, you know, she, she has this line about, you know, resting on no definitions and I'm not sure what she has in mind because at least Kant actually gives definitions. I mean, they're written if, you know, it's, it's Age not like an, right. Um, but at least they're there and, right. uh, and you get, whereas Rawls, there's no examples. I like guess 600 pages with no examples. <laughs> Uh, and if there is one or two, I, I, I don't recall them six years after. Would it have been it. nice for him to find justice in his, quote, theory of justice? <laughs> she observed um, that as well. Yeah, so it's the, the, uh, it, it's definitely not easy to take in and, you know, requires uh, a lot of work. 
in a way that is um, not respectful of the reader. And so, you know, the, the, the well, we'll talk about it more when we get to it later, but I just wanted to point out that like Rawls is really bad. On one of my favorite lines from Ayn Rand about another philosopher is in this essay when she refers to Hegel. Because no one's ever read Hegel, although lots of people have put their eye across every word on every one of his pages. <laughs> Hegel is so darned ambiguous that really it is a headache to get to a single page of Hegel's dense, impenetrable po prose in some cases. But yeah, uh, yeah, Hegel is worse than Kant, and I think Rawls is even worse than Kant. Uh, but reading Kant, Hegel, and Rawls is an assault on your mind, trying to figure this out with logic and maintain your, your sense of sanity as you're trying to understand what they're saying. The cult of ambiguity more muddy waters or holy waters the fact that people don't understand something is why it's going to catch hold and have such authority she gets into that psychology too all too common oh but what one thing i wanted to stress the the, the point i meant to make um she 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 has this line of like their conclusions are brazenly clear so that's one thing where like even if you're all right i can't sit and read the whole critique of pure reason i can't read all of rawls or something um but i want to have a sense of if what ayn rand's saying is true you can actually read selections that are pretty clear of rawls like making this point about luck and you know, giving his basic conclusions, and it's the same with Kant. If you read the um, the introductions and preface to the Critique of Pure Reason, it's still a little difficult, but the conclusions are made really clear. It's when you get to their reasoning and their arguments that you go, I don't know what the hell they're talking about, and what like what is this supposed to prove, and what are the supposed steps and things. So um, there, it's not that you have. Um, the work you have to do to see that she's like getting the, the core of what they're doing right, uh, I think you can get much more simply than you can if you're trying to really get it. How exactly, what is their argument and how are they trying to put it over and whatnot? Um, so, I mean, that's just a, a lead to encourage people who want to at least have a sense that she's not attacking a straw man. The work involved in doing that, I think, is a lot less than the work in like, being able to have a scholarly view of yes, this is how Rawls argues, and this is how he'd answer, you know, objections and so on. That that really is a you know that that takes years of work. Um, what is the fun fundamental view of mer merit in Rawls' thinking? Does he attach any merit to the idea of merit? There's no analysis of what merit would constitute. In fact, the, the whole, the, the, you know, if you think about it, merit is exactly what's obliterated here in all of this thinking. There really is no merit to any outcome in effect. This is a morally neutral thing. It, the, the you didn't build it argument goes all the way to, look, it was who your parents were. Look, it's the luck that you had a brain that was gifted or a body that was gifted uh, or socioeconomic circumstances that were gifted, or you went to a good school and that was really only because you had this context. In fact, he drains the whole concept of merit of any substance. So take the merit part of it. That, that is just not even inapplicable in terms of roles. 
it's not your your outcomes are not a function of merit is the premise of the egalitarian yeah so i mean w- one way to think about it is um from the objectivist view concepts you, to to be able to use a concept you have to be able to answer the question what facts give rise to the need for this concept and actually i, I might as well read this because Ayn Rand does this in introduction for uh, uh, to objectivist epistemology for what concept? You want to guess? Justice. She, she shows what it means to actually derive a, a concept from reality and show this is a legitimate concept. So let me just re- read this uh, since I think it's so on point here. What fact of reality? What facts of reality give? Uh, gave rise to the concept justice, the fact that man must draw conclusions about the things, people, and events around him, i.e. must judge and evaluate them. Is his judgment automatically right? No. What causes his judgment to be wrong? The lack of sufficient evidence or his evasion of the evidence or his inclusion of considerations other than the facts of the case. How then is he arrived to arrive at the right judgment? By basing it exclusively on the factual evidence and by considering all of the relevant evidence po- available. But isn't this a description of objectivity? Yes, objective judgment is one of the wider categories to which the concept justice belongs. What distinguishes justice from other issues of objective judgment? When one evaluates the nature of actions of inanimate objects, the criterion of judgment is determined by the particular purpose for which one evaluates them. But how does one determine a criterion for evaluating the character and actions of men in view of the fact that men possess the faculty of volition? What science can provide an objective criterion of evaluation in regard to volitional matters? Ethics. Now, do I need a concept to designate the act of judging a man's character and her actions exclusively on the basis of all the factual evidence available and evaluating it by means of an objective moral criterion? Yes, that concept is justice. So you see, she's. Uh, we have to be able to answer the question of what in reality gives rise to the need to for this concept. Well, for merit, earn, deserve, where what is um, the contrast that we get for them for Rawls? Well, it's a, it's effectively people who earn their identities. They earn all their characteristics. They earn all their features. Before, as you know, before they were born, that's our kind of like you know uh, interpretation of it. But it's basic. But he would say that to to earn anything is to earn all of the um, things about you that went into creating them. Well, that's a fantasy, right? Like, there's nothing in reality that gives rise to that because there's no such phenomenon. There, we don't need to distinguish people who earned their parents from people who didn't. Like that doesn't make any sense. But are, is there something in reality that does give rise to the concept earn? Is there anything that we do need to distinguish? Well, how about this? Jim, open your wallet. How did you get that money? Did you steal it? Did you beg somebody for it? Or did you go out and work and people paid you for it? Or it, money can sometimes cloud the issue. So think about this. Do we need a concept to distinguish a person who goes out to their, their land and grows some corn from the person who then steals their corn or who comes to the door and says, uh, I, didn't, uh, I didn't bother to work this year. Can you give me some corn? Yeah, we need to. We say this guy earned it. These guys didn't. And what is Rawls's fantasy version of earn do? 
it wipes out that distinction. It says all three of those people are the same, whether you whined and complained, grabbed a gun and, and, and took it like a stick up man or worked your ass off to get some corn. None of you guys earned your parents. It's a, it's a racing of vital distinction that we have to make. Um, and, and so it's in that sense in which he, no, he does not have the concept and he's not entitled to the concept, but we do need the concept and we need it precisely in order to make that distinction. But Rawls can't have that because if he has that, you have to throw out his whole book because the, the whole presumption is that, um, what is the claim on wealth? Well, it can't be to earn or merit or deserve it. We know that. So it needs to be some other criterion. But if you have that, it's, well, no, that's exactly a perspective we can take on wealth is, did you go through the actions to create it or not? Um, then his whole project doesn't even get off the ground. Eloquently put. Really. What about this switch? Could you comment a bit more on the switch between his comments of saying, well these things are amoral because it, they come from nature. But then right after that, they say, well, but we must correct this, these ideas. This um, facts. Oh, yeah. So what you're saying is um, in, in, Rand's, in the review Rand's commenting on, so uh, she makes the point, in fact, it's worth reading because uh, I mean, I'm, it's, this is a shorter selection than the thing I, I read before, but just uh, to get it. So um, the way Rand is putting it is that the uh, new theory of justice demands that men counteract the injustice of nature by in other words, nature didn't make us all equally intelligent. It didn't make us all equally creative by instituting the most obscenely unthinkable injustice among men, deprive those favored by nature, i.e. the talented, the intelligent, the creative, of the right to the rewards they produce, i.e. the right to life, and grant to the incompetent, the stupid, the slothful a right, the effortless enjoyment of the rewards they could not produce, could not imagine, and would not know what to do with. But then she goes on to say, and this is what you're commenting on. Mr. Cohen would object to my formulation and quote, it is important to understand, he writes, that according to Rawls, it is neither just nor unjust that men are born with differing natural abilities into different social positions. These are simply natural facts. And then she says, true, but if so, what is the purpose of the next sentence? To be sure, no one deserves his greater natural capacity or merits. Uh, or merits a more favorable starting point in society. The natural and social lottery is arbitrary from a moral point of view. So the kind of Rawlsian view is, look, it's not unjust that, you know, you have more intelligence than I am. It's just arbitrary. It's just a lottery. Um, and, but this is then the thing that it sneaks in that it's unjust through the back door and says, Okay, well, given that it's a lottery, how are we going? To, let me put it differently. What he would say is, given that it's a lottery, we don't have to take it into consideration. We're not trying to. Some egalitarians will say, so our goal has to be to solve the lottery problem, right? We need to, in effect, try to distribute wealth as if uh, 
luck plays no role. And that's not what Rawls is trying to do. He's not trying to create a just society by eliminating luck, which uh, they're, they're luck egalitarians who view things that way. What he's doing is saying that because it's luck, because it's a lottery, we can just set that whole idea of earn to the side and instead think about distribution of wealth in a different way. And his way is going to be, what are the rules for distributing wealth that we would all agree to if we didn't know where we were going to be in this lottery? And, and that's where he's going he's gonna to argue that we would want a rule that maximize the well-being of the worst off. It would assume equality is our starting point, but it would allow for it if that led to lifting up the worst off and only to the extent that it lifts the worst off. So it's in that sense that um, Rawls himself wouldn't put it in terms of we're trying to remedy this injustice, though there is a kind of, though in effect, what it amounts to is uh, is penalizing people for the uh, unfairness of being born smarter and so on. But Rawls doesn't frame things that way. Although this reviewer she's quoting is more, um, I think straddling the Rawlsian type of view with the, 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 um, luck egalitarian view. I don't think he's very clear on it. And indeed we'll see that play out in that. I think he's the one who ultimately says Rawls doesn't go far enough. He's not egalitarian enough. We need to cater to envy and everything. We like, he's going to allow those high flyers to fly way higher than I want them to. Um, so it, there is, you have to recognize uh, an intermingling of different views. This is, we're not getting pure Rawls. And it's one reason why I think Ayn Rand went out of her way to warn us that this is not, Rawls and uh, the reviewers, I think, are, are you have to um, see that they're getting Rawls largely right, but it's not, you know, um, Rawls would not necessarily agree with every formulation they're making. Right. But she does observe the remarkable thing that we go from something that is regarded as morally neutral, just a fact of nature, the way you were born or who your parents were, and then we need to correct it in justice. As if the as if the co moral concepts would apply to the metaphysical, and here's where we have that conflation between the metaphysical and the man-made. It's not an they treat it as an injustice, even though they admit there's really no injustice involved, or at least Rawls does to some extent. Notice Rawls is trying to, in effect, make a concession. He thinks to the right and to the concept of inequality. I will tolerate a certain amount of inequality, but only insofar as it benefits the least least off. They're admitting that maybe incentives might make a difference to the extent that will allow inequality to the extent that it positively affects the least well off. Now, our left-wing uh, rejoinder here from Mr. Marshall Cohen says, oh, I don't think that goes far enough. I don't think that goes nearly far enough. Why should, in effect, we have to concede anything, anything to those guys? So, the debate is, in effect, two different ways of evading volition, and that human effort is really the cause of values. But that's what they're both dancing around, in effect. So I think the core argument of Rawls is based on this uh, veil of ignorance, he calls it. Um, what is this thing? And how does Rank critique this notion? It's a perfectly bizarre and mystical approach, isn't it? Imagine yourself as identityless, and that we all have to imagine ourselves 
sans any particular uh, situation or context, and then imagine what situation, what best social system. Now we're supposed to devise a social system behind this veil of knowing where you are in terms of your particular context or talents or uh, situation. And so not knowing things, not only about yourself, but lots of things in effect about human beings in general is this veil of ignorance. Put yourself in this position where you wouldn't know who your parents were or your natural gifts are, and then tell me what society you'd want to live in. What a bizarre way of approaching politics. And in effect, what, what Ayn Rand is saying is she's asking you to divorce the context of knowledge from the decision by putting you behind this veil of ignorance, which is exactly the opposite. The only way we're going to actually understand justice and what the appropriate outcomes are is by taking all those things into account that they're intentionally leaving out. Yeah, and it's I mean it's interesting to contrast it with other social contract theories. Now, just for the record, Ayn Rand's not a social contract th theorist at all, but in the Enlightenment, the idea was we started with a uh, we 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 have a mental construct that we use to think about politics, but it's a state of nature theory. It's in effect we imagine human beings before they've entered society, and we think about their needs and their goals and why they might be incentivized to form a society. But it's thinking about human needs, human goals, human nature. And what Rawls, in effect, does is say, throw all that out. And it's what rules would you agree to without any thinking about human needs, human abilities, human nature? It's just sort of like, what sounds great to you guys? Um, it's, it's, it's stripping away way, basically, and this is going to be part of Ayn Rand's critique, it's that in order to think about proper social organization, the key question is precisely what is man's identity? What is our nature? What are the requirements of our life? What are the requirements of social cooperation? What are the requirements of creating wealth? And for Rawls, it's, we're stripping all that out. Now, to be fair to him, um, it's sort of ambiguous, at least to me, and certainly my recollection of years of like you could argue what he's stripping out is the individualizing elements, but there's no consideration in him. Uh, I, this I know for sure of human needs. There's no view of man as a biological creature who has to do certain things in order to survive. It's all about like what we want and what we agree to. So long as we're not taking into account our particular, uh, the particular features of our identity or our, our life as we know it. And the point is that once you exit the realm of reality, you can do thought experiments like a state of nature that can sharpen your thinking or Ayn Rand will use, you know, a, a, an individual on an island. And notice she doesn't use like you on an island. She's thinking about man qua man, like the, a, a rational creature who has survival needs on an island. So it's an abstract perspective. It's not like you, Don Watkins versus you, Jim Valiant. Um, it's, it's man versus, you know, other creatures and, we can learn a lot by thinking about that, but you can't learn anything of strip away the identity of individuals without any reflection on like what aspects of human nature you're retaining. And I don't see in Rawls anywhere where you get a clear statement of like, uh, or analysis of any of that. It's, um, in fact, it has to be that way for if he were to acknowledge the nature of reason is man's only, as Ayn Rand does say, is our only way of knowing 
It's our basic means of survival. It operates volitionally. If he were to acknowledge those things about man, then all the particular differences that he's evading would suddenly come into focus for us. <laughs> all the relevant facts would now come into focus and exactly what he's evading, personal responsibility, individual choice, individual effort, individual thought. That's exactly what he's evading and asking us to evade when deciding what the best social system is. So forget that people are different in talent, but forget that people are different in effort. Forget that people are different in dedication to, to what they're doing. Forget all these individual attributes. And he can't really identify reason and volition, can he? Because that would give away the whole show. You've got to devise this political system without any consideration of who you would be, including any even remote consideration of what choices and effort you might put into it. That cannot be considered by Rawls because that would destroy the whole game. The entire egalitarian game would be up the minute these people acknowledged that that was really the significant factor. So one of the core conclusions and one of the things that has been brought both by the essay and into the influence of the culture is this min max um, way of weighting social issues. And Rand talks about this being a development on how intellectuals have stopped using the majority rule as a concept of framing um, normative questions in, in society. So what is the relationship of these two other comments that Rand has in other essays discussing the, the collapse of the left um, and, and, and the brewing up of the, of the new left? Well, if the conservatives' use of utilitarianism, that is to say the justification for individual freedom is that it results in the greatest good or the greatest happiness for the greatest number, if that is a collectivist justification, if that evades the, the fa facts about human nature and volition and that it's an individual uh, faculty, then consider what we're doing here. We're taking a sort of a collectivist justification even one step further it's not the well-being of the most or the majority. It, so we really can't, it's not simply the economic democracy that was advocated by the old left, as she points out. No, no, we've got to do much better than that. It's got to, we've got to focus on the least well-off. So even if those others higher up doing better off themselves suffer, so long as the least well-off are doing as best as they can, that's our goal. Our goal is not to have the wealthiest society, or not to have the most rich people, or not to have the most general prosperity, which was at least the collectivist justification of the right before, these people are out doing that. No, it's the bums. It's the, it's the condition of the most poor, the most miserable. That's the standard by which we would judge a social system. Oof. And they, of course, they give it all the pseudoscientific fault or all uh, mini-max and so forth. But that's an effect that's going on. Yeah, well, let me say a little bit of a word about like the dressing of it up. So Rand makes the notes or observes that Rawls, um, she calls it fascinating and she doesn't explain why she's fascinated uh, that he's directing uh, his attack on uh, uh, utilitarianism. And she, she notes that part of the reason why is this concern that 
um, utilitarianism, we're going to do what's you know best for the greatest number, the greatest happiness, that that it can involve sacrificing the rights of minorities of, well, what about the people who aren't, you know, part of the overall thing? Like, uh, what if we can make people happier by getting rid of gay people? And, or what if we could get, make people happier by getting rid of gypsies or something like that? Like there's no protection for that. And Rawls is, that's part of Rawls's concern. Um, and so what he does is he comes and says that, we have we have to have uh, what kind of rules would we agree to? Well, we would not agree to greatest good for the greatest number, because what if we're in the minority? So we're going to agree to 100 percent uncompromising individual rights. You may think, well, that sounds great. Ayn Rand's all for uncompromising individual rights. But what he does is he he distinguishes. He says, well, that's like free speech and like, you know, your civil rights not getting locked up in jail. That has nothing to do with property rights, has nothing to do with economics. That's going to operate by a different set of rules. And here we see, I think, the the other reason that he's really concerned with utilitarianism. I think it's part of his defense of egalitarianism. So he sees egalitarians who have been around in one form or another for a long time as vulnerable to the utilitarians. Because what do the, the utilitarians say? What are you just going to have people equally miserable? Like that sounds like a nightmare. And so he's able to, he, he thinks he can square that circle. Said, well, I'm going to take the best part of utilitarianism. I'm going to say, no, like we, we can have inequality if it lifts up the worst off, um, but only to the extent that it lifts up the worst off. So I'm going to preserve egalitarianism as an orientation, but I'm going to make a little space. Well, how much? Well, okay, Steve Jobs can earn more than a janitor so long as it makes the uh, heroin addict a little bit off, a little bit better off, right? Like, um, so you know, maybe, maybe, mo- like in general, everybody will make ten thousand dollars, but if we let Steve Jobs take eleven thousand dollars, well, man, then everybody will earn like ten thousand five hundred dollars. It'll be, it'll be a Christmas miracle. Um, that it's that kind of thinking. I my numbers didn't capture exactly the right point because it's not an average of everybody. It, it's that. the worst off. <laughs> but I think I think you get the point. It's that yeah. the only justification for Steve Jobs earning one penny more than the biggest loser you can find is if it helps the biggest loser. Right. That's right. how. Like that's the monstrous nature of it. The sole um, right moral there. justification for Steve Jobs earning a dime more than anyone else is not his effort, his creative thought, or even his natural talent. No, 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 that gets no acknowledgement. It's whether or not, and to, only to the extent that it actually benefits the least well off. Wow. It's monstrous. Yeah, and the view, this is, this is what everybody would agree to. Um, which that would be is, unanimous. We, presume, we, we, he presumes we'd all agree. I sure the heck wouldn't, but he presumes that we'd all unanimously agree if we were behind this veil of ignorance. Well, and that, and and so that's where I mean, one of the things Rawls is drawing on is game theory, and so basically, there's this idea of the in, these intellectuals have worked out how human beings would reason if they were smart enough to reason well. And so we're going to tell you exactly what you'd agree to. And we know you'll agree to it because we, we have this whole theory about how you will reason. Um, so it's, 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 uh, it's one step less crazy than it sounds when, you know, just put it as this is a unanimous set of rules, but it's only one step 
less crazy because if you actually look at the the kind of pretense involved of like appealing to this game theory type reasoning um it is in the Total end. intellectual pretentiousness <laughs> yeah. design design ran to make us think that there's something there when this is really just a mystical arbitrary methodology that he adopts to come out with the outcome that he wants yes <laughs> Just like Kant's obfuscations were all designed for that clear policy upshot that he's going to come to. We cannot know the world in itself. Really good insight. <laughs> yeah. Even the way that it's framed, at least in the essay um, of the game theory, sound to me a bit weird because... I mean, even within game theory, you, you have like risk aversion. And I think the, the whole idea that Rand makes of, well, I'm going to maximize my whatever it takes in over the long run. And I think that breaks and that's consistent with game theory. Um, but um, anyways, um, I think we can move on to the last part um, which is the, re the response, the adoption, and the PR of the of the book, and basically, Rand makes like a whole way in which she predicts that 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 the book is going to be taken by the people and by the intellectuals. Do you think, first of all, what what is what she was thinking that was going to happen, and finally, did it happen at, at the end? Her prediction became true. Oh yeah. By the 1980s, when I was a philosophy undergraduate at MIU, Rawls was the the book to read if you're studying political philosophy. Uh, about 10 years after she wrote this uh, uh, essay, it was standard reading and the most standard reading. That is to say, it was up there with Ma reading Machiavelli and Mills and Locke. You had to read Rawls. So yeah, it, beca it became a standard, and it's considered, and it was considered by the left, one of the most important theoretical books in political philosophy of the last half of the 20th century. Yeah, I don't think that she was predicting that this would happen to the book. What she was saying is that this is the pattern in which these kinds of books become prevalent. And if that happens to this book and we're seeing signs that it might, this is how it will play out. And in that sense, her prediction was right. But I don't think she was saying like this will happen to Rawls. But yeah, I mean, Jim's exactly right that, I mean, Rawls was seen as reviving political philosophy. Political philosophy had been a dead end. Nobody serious was going into it in philosophy. It was, uh, it was not the sexy place to be. And he revives it. And it was, oh, here's a new framework for us to play with. And um, it became the kind of go-to framework. And uh, I mean, thankfully, it opened the door then uh, for Anarchy State and, the Uto and Utopia by Nozick. So at least a far better, though imperfect view got on the table. And so there was this revival of political philosophy. And one of the interesting things is that the pro-capitalists will often be put in as blended as libertarian. That view is actually way more um, respectable in academia. Uh, and I think it's in, in that sense, you could say it's through Rawls because Rawls gets political philosophy on the table. Nozick answers it in a academically respectable way. And so I think you actually see a lot more you know, libertarians in academia than you would have 
you know, 30 or 40 years ago or without Rawls um, because the, the, he kind of opened the door to new philosophic frameworks and then Nozick kind of put things on the table. And Nozick, of course, was influenced by Rand, Rand directly and uh, certainly indirectly, Mostly indirectly. Uh, in, in a really profound way. Um, and so it's, I sometimes wonder, uh, you can't really run the experiment, um, but, you know, once the revolution comes and every the world turns to capitalism, I think we'll want intellectual historians to figure out whether on net Rawls was good or bad. Um, I, probably bad. But if you credit him with the academic world taking capitalism seriously in a way that it wasn't before, then who knows? That's, that's pure speculation. But Don makes a really good point. Alongside Rawls, we were asked to read long sections from Anarchy, State, and Utopia. I mean, and here we have two Harvard philosophy professors engaged in a debate about serious political philosophy. That was a new state of affairs. And uh, Nozick was uh, mostly indirectly influenced by Ayn Rand. His book, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, was, in part was an attempt to defend um, a Lockean state that would defend rights against Murray Rothbard, the famous anarchist's view of uh, things. And in effect, uh, Rothbard was arguing with uh, Nozick about natural rights and how natural rights in his view necessitated anarchy. So it was sort of in through the back door, this uh, quasi watered down view of, of, of Rand's theory of rights uh, influenced uh, Nozick right there. Nozick would go on in the 1970s to write an explicit critique of Ayn Rand in The Personalist, a, a technical uh, philosophy journal, uh, on the Randian argument. It totally, it, it's frankly an embarrassment for a Harvard philosophy professor to have written. He got, gets Ayn Rand's ideas wrong in every particular. And there were uh, other philosophers who in the same publication later followed up and said, uh, wait a minute, uh, Prof Professor Nozick, you've got it all wrong. You didn't even get her position straight. So he was influenced by Ayn Rand in a negative way. He really didn't understand her argument for ethics and rights as he demonstrated in academic journals, but he was indirectly mostly influenced by Ayn Rand uh, to defend a Lockean idea of rights um, through the person specifically of Marianne Rothbard. Yeah, but I mean, this in the second part of Anarchy, State, and Utopia, is an attack on Rawls. So the first one is a response to Rothbard and the second is a response to Rawls. And I don't agree with everything in there, but the response to Rawls is really good. Really I mean, good. If, if you really want to see um, a good, not a perfect critique, but if you really want to see a thoughtful, in-depth critique of Rawls, uh, Ayn Rand gives us the essential philosophic one. I expand, Yaron uh, and I expand on it uh, a little bit in Equals Unfair. Um, but by far, I think the uh, most in-depth treatment, aside from the basic philosophic issues, uh, come across in Anarchy, State, and Utopia. And um, the whole book, though it has a lot of problems, I think is it, it's one of the more interesting books um, in political philosophy you'll read. And definitely, I mean, Rawls and Nozick did at least in the last decades of the 20th century create a real debate and one, as uh, you know, Don accurately points out, that really wasn't 
being debated at all, you know, Lockean rights versus egalitarianism. And it, it opened up a debate and uh, gave a sort of an intellectual respectability to Lockean libertarians. Definitely. Thank you. So we have five minutes left. Um, and I have one concluding question, but I don't know if you have something else to that that we shouldn't have um, talked about, but we didn't. No. no okay. No, um, so basically, my question is what particularly eloquent in <laughs> covering <laughs> things well, yeah. Um, so what can one do to achieve a world where deeds are rewarded and, and the bad deeds are punished? Well, the battle is in philosophy. The battle is to make clear the premises that these egalitarians are wiping out, ignoring, and evading, and bring them to the fore. We need a systematic philosophical defense of morality, a proper morality that appreciates the role of volition and thought and effort and creativity. That's what we need. And we need a philosophical justification for that. And we need serious arguments for that because it is the ethical base that really will control and shape the political argument, just as Ayn Rand said. So in my view, philosophy is the answer, promoting Ayn Rand's philosophy, promoting a philosophy with a rational ethics that appreciates the role of the creative mind in human survival. That and only that will fix this problem. Well, and I'll add, I, I agree with that. So what I'll add is a pitch for uh, starting next Thursday, we will be doing a communication boot camp, Ayn Rand Center UK, where we'll help people develop exactly those skills. That is, all right, you have a good philosophy and now you want to promote it. How do you communicate those ideas in a way that will be impactful, whether it's speaking, being interviewed or through writing? And so uh, uh, I'll let you tell everybody kind of details about that, but I'll be leading it and really hope that um, people show up. I think it's going to be uh, really enjoyable and hopefully really valuable. Oh, you got to check it out. Don is just the guy for this topic. If I know anything about Don's great work, please check it out. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, uh, to be actually in the communication bootcamp, you can become a member. Um, the link is on the chat in YouTube. Um, membership starts on £10 a month. That's like $14. Today, May 2021, maybe a bit more later. Um, and please join. If you enjoy these kind of conversations as much as I do, please consider joining us. Um, so in 30 minutes, uh, we will have the premiere of Flirting with Reason on YouTube with Maria Nikos. They had been previously talking in Clubhouse and they will uh, discuss dating inequality. Um, what would Rawls say about that? We will see. See, we would have to determine a, a system of dating without knowing how good-looking or charming we are. <laughs> That's catfishing. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Bye, guys.